Hello, hello, and a very warm welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and investing ideas to help you beat low interest rates and horrid inflation by getting you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. Okay, so on to episode five of series four, and this is kind of a second parter, really. We were t- discussing inflation with Simon French last week. This week, we're going to speak to Leith Calif, who's head of investment analysis at AJ Bell, as we sort of examine then different routes to investing in order to try and beat some of that torrid inflation. Uh, certainly a situation that isn't being made any better by the war that's broken out in Ukraine. So before all of that, we're going to have a look at some of the impact of that war on fund flows and economies and markets, and also some of the companies that are exposed to the crisis through in, in the FTSE 100. Um, and just to start as well, given it's ISA season and we're near the tax year end, we're also going to discuss some of those investment trusts and funds that have performed really, really strongly over the long term and would have made you an ISA millionaire if you'd used up all your allowances from the moment the ISA was launched, 6th of April 1999 through to today. So it's really just sort of examining some of those strong long-term performers in both the funds world and the investment trust world. But just before we start with the first story, if you're new to the pod uh, or you haven't already, please subscribe to the channel and also share it as well if you like what you're listening to. Okay, let's start with the funds and trusts that could have made you an ISA millionaire. So it's ISA season, obviously. We're sort of approaching the tax year end and you know, you'll know you see a lot of material out there that's sort of talking about your ISA and, and sort of using up that £20,000 allowance that we get each year before we tip into the new the new tax year and, and you get another allowance. So there's a lot of chat about you know what you can do with your ISAs, what you can put into your ISAs, what you can invest in. So we thought we'd run along that seam and talk about some of these, these great funds and trusts that have performed very strongly over long periods of time that's what we that's the horizon that we want to be looking at when we're we're making our investments and Leith Calif who you're going to hear from in our interview was also giving me some other information around some of these trusts and funds that have that have turned uh, people into ISA millionaires if they had invested the full ISA allowance over the entire time period that they've been available so since 1999 now, allowances have actually changed quite considerably over the years and, and gone up quite considerably. Um, so, for example, like it was, it was the seventeen eighteen tax year that we saw the ISA allowance jump from fifteen thousand two hundred forty pounds to twenty thousand pounds, for example, and it and it was much lower than that before then. So, over that whole period, the full ISA allowance would have been in total two hundred sixty three thousand four hundred forty pounds. Okay and you're investing that over 23 years. So they're basically looking at that sort of that amount of money being drip, drip fed in into an ISA over you know in the appropriate amounts over that uh, that period of time and seeing what you know the performance of that what value you would have got back over that period of time and uh, you know it's interesting stuff. I mean I think there's some unsurprising names in here that you will know. But out of all the funds and trusts out there over that that time period so you know we have had a lot of new ones that have been launched uh you know since the beginning of that time period 
Um, so there's now about five, five, over five and a half thousand funds, I think there are, and 400 investment trusts. But anyway, so it probably is a smaller amount than those. But over that whole period, 14 funds and 22 investment trusts would have tipped that £263,440 over the million pound mark and made you an ISA millionaire. And topping the pack, probably somewhat unsurprisingly, are those heavy with US stocks and tech stocks in particular. Because we know, particularly over the past 10 years, those some of those good quality tech stocks have really just just ballooned in value. And so has the US market in general. You know, it is now 70% of global equities. And that figure has grown because they've had so many of these high quality growth stocks that have been very popular over the past 10 years, which has generally been a period of time that's been quite benign in terms of, of growth and inflation. So that I thought was quite interesting. The top performing fund was Bailey Gifford's American Fund, handing you back £1,423,136. Topping the trusts is Scottish Mortgage, which would have given you quite a bit more, £1,805,666. And actually, when you look at the figures, the top five trusts, so on top of Scottish Mortgage, there's a Alliance Technology Trust, HG Capital Trust, which is a private equity fund. We've got Polar Capital Technology. Um, so again, another sector-specific one like Allianz Technology. And Pacific Horizon, that's an Asia-Pacific focused strategy. All of those beat the top fund, Bailey Gifford American, in terms of the value handed back which I thought was very interesting there. So you've got five trusts that are ahead of the top fund. Why is that? Gearing really is the main reason. It's one of these features of investment trusts. They can go out there, they can borrow extra money, not just the money that investors give them, but they can they can borrow extra money, much like a mortgage from a bank, and put that extra money to work in the markets. It's called leverage. And the you know so it, it comes from banks comes from other institutions as well but the thing you've got to remember so so by doing that you can enhance gains which is why trusts generally when you compare them like for like over longer periods of time if you had the same strategy one in a fund the other in a trust trusts do tend to do better because they've got that extra leverage in them over longer periods of time and the reason why i say longer periods of time is because it's a double-edged sword it also enhances losses as well so it works both ways. That means that investment trust price action can be a bit more volatile. So you've got to be comfortable with that. But if you're in it for the long run, then it can be a really positive thing for your performance. If you're not so up for the volatility, then, and it's funds you're after, aside from the Bailey Gifford American Fund, in the top five, we have Lion Trust UK Smaller Companies, Bailey Gifford Pacific, so that's another Asia Pacific Trust, but it excludes Japan, this one. Then we've got Janice Henderson Global Tech Leaders. Janice Henderson are my former employer. And then the last in fifth place is Aberdeen's Indian Equity. So that's obviously quite a specialist play there. So I thought that was quite interesting and uh, um, in terms of you know those really stellar long-term performance. On to flows, and I thought I would just comment on what investors across the UK have, have been buying and selling. And I'm sure a lot of you are probably wondering what's happening around 
the really tragic outbreak of war in Ukraine. And um, I'll get on to that more broadly in a sec in markets. But I think in terms of how investors are taking it and what they're doing with their money. So if we look at the first week, so this is over February alone. If we look at the first week of February, half a billion still flowed into funds that invest in shares in that first week. Then that sort of dropped over the next three weeks as the situation intensified to pretty much zero. So there wasn't really a lot of money coming in or out. But then, obviously, war broke out. This this shocked a lot of people. I think many of us thought that it was just a pressure tactic from Putin rather than an actual threat. And uh, as the war broke out, investors then started to pull a bit more money out. And um, in the final three days of trading in February, we saw 604 million in, in outflows. And of the markets out there, it was quite broad, but hardest hit were North America, Europe and the UK, with, Europe, with the UK specifically um, the worst out of those as investors sort of had to think about what the impact of sanctions might be. Um, so, but, you know, I suppose the only positive really is that what Coulston, who provided the data, was saying was that actually really, you know, you, you're always going to have some sellers and usually some buyers. This was actually really a drop in buyers as sort of you had this kind of wait and see type thing rather than this big increase in sellers. So what they're suggesting is that it was caution rather than a route, a big, intense round of selling. So it's not total panic out there, um, but that's sort of what investors were doing over February. Okay, let's move on to markets. And I thought I'd focus a little bit on the situation in Ukraine and the war and the impact, really, and the risks that it's creating geopolitically, economically, and uh, and into markets. It, you know, it it seems the objective of Putin is to keep Ukraine in Russia's sphere of interest. He obviously believes the two countries are one in the same and doesn't recognize the independence of Ukraine. So this is really seen as shaking Europe's post-Cold War security architecture, really. And it's a very significant rupture between Russia and, and the West. And, you know, probably the biggest since the Cold War. It's significantly worse than after the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Russia is in a stronger financial position than it was in 2014, and it's been working to somewhat protect its economy from uh, the outside world. But sanctions this time around do seem to have significantly more bite as the US administration seems to have changed its approach and you know now is really conducting what is an economic war. Many Western companies have stopped business and cut ties with Russia. We've seen many Russian banks be iced out of the global financial system. But I think the biggest scalp and the biggest move, and for the first time ever, was seeing sanctions on Russia's central bank and the freezing of its assets abroad, which is having a very real impact in Russia, really. And, and it's restricting access to its war chest of around $630 billion worth of far, foreign currency reserves and gold reserves which affects their seriously affects their ability to prop up their currency the ruble which has lost around a third of its its value since the war started other measures include sanctioning its sovereign wealth fund also removing it from msci emerging um world index and uh, sorry emerging market index and the downgrading of its bonds as well we saw many notches so it's now 
in junk status. And, you know, for the rest, uh, for, for investors, for markets more broadly, it's triggering this dash for certain commodities as, you know, people worry about those, the supply chain of those, particularly oil and gas, given the world and particularly Europe's reliance on Russian energy. I mean, Europe takes between 25 to 30 percent of its energy from Russia. The world is around 11 percent of its energy comes from Russia. So the fear, of course, is that supplies could be disrupted. And that's why prices are sort of spiking. Although, you know, I, I would caveat that with the fact that there are incentives on both sides to keep the flows of of that energy uh, continuing. It's a risk though, you know, in 2014, there was a glut of supplies, whereas today, you know, inventories are quite, quite uh, tight, and there isn't much spare production capacity. Um, either, if there's an issue, you know, some room to maneuver, there's an issue with a supplier, you know, Simon French actually was talking about this, uh, our economist, our regular economist, um, in in the last pod. So, you know, it leaves prices quite volatile. And indeed, the price of oil has shot up 20% in the past few days. Um, the Another commodity really on the hook is is wheat, you know, both Russia and Ukraine are big exporters of it. But you know, all, all commodity prices really have been rising aluminium, coal, etc. And I think if I was to, you know, sum up what the sort of broader worry in markets is, is that, you know, we we've already seen inflation being stoked by coming out of covid and issues like supply chain log jams this could further further stoke it, it it you know and and i think the the problem with that is that it could knock economies into a recession that's the kind of worry and the word is stagflation so this is this um you know worst of both worlds where economies are growing very slowly but employment and inflation is quite high so that's that's the key worry really all in all, over the two weeks, the stock 600 is down 4.3%. The FTSE 100 is down 2.3%. The S&P 500 is slightly up 0.1%. And then the K225 is down 2.4%. Okay, final bit on companies before we get into the main interview with Laith. Uh, I thought I'd have a little look at what's been going on in the FTSE as they have a bit of a reshuffle once a quarter. Um, so basically, you know, the indices in the FTSE, like the FTSE 100, the FTSE 250, they are weighted according to what we call market cap. So market capitalization. That basically is the total value of a company's shares in a market. And the indices are ordered from largest down to smallest. And clearly the total value of that company changes as the value of the shares are traded and they go up and down, etc. So at a certain point, once a quarter, uh, which is March, June, September and December, they have a look at the value of all, all of these companies and they see whether it needs a bit of a reshuffle. So maybe some companies have been trading so badly in the FTSE 100 that there's companies in the FTSE 250 that are now more valuable uh, than that company in the FTSE 100. So clearly they need to reshuffle and, and put those more valuable companies in the FTSE 250 into the FTSE 100. So you get this sort of reshuffle. And what's been quite quite stark recently, as you can kind of imagine, is the war in the Ukraine has affected the fate of certain companies more than others. And um, it's created a reshuffling that's sort of been 
well, it's sort of been throwing the pack into the air rather than a gentle reshuffle, really. So we had the review time this week and it looked at the value of the businesses close of play Tuesday 1st and um, and we saw some movement there. So I thought I'd go through just a, a, a few of those um, uh which, you know, quite quite interesting stuff, really. And it can have a big impact on companies, you know. When you consider the amount of, of FTSE 100 trackers, for example, that there are automatic buying will will happen with those trackers. You know, they will just buy everything in the index in the same proportions, right? So if you move into the FTSE 100, your fortunes can be changed because suddenly you've got a whole load more trackers. There generally are lots more FTSE 100 trackers than there are FTSE 250. So you, you're suddenly can receive you know the potential for more for more funding so that's why it's important and um first of all let's have a look who's leaving the FTSE 100 and surprise surprise two russian focused miners evraz and polymetal international uh clearly sanctions have had a bit of impact on them so we start with evraz this is a miner its shares have more than halved in value which is translated into very heavy losses for Roman Abramovich, who owns more than 30% of that miner. Also, gold miner, polymetal. So this is, uh, it might be a surprise because gold actually has been increasing in price. It's seen as a safe haven asset. So things, you know, that tend to upset markets, tend you tend to see uh, gold going up as a bit of a hedge. And, um, and but the problem with this particular miner is that its main customers are big Russian banks who have been, you know, um, uh, sanctioned quite heavily. So, and the banks sell it onto the gold onto international gold market. So that company has not done very well. In fact, it shares are down more than 75%. So those two have fallen out. Uh, onto set to join the FTSE 100. Now I mentioned that gold has been rising due to a safe haven status. So whilst it hasn't been good for Polymetal International, it has been quite good for another company called Endeavor Mining, which owns and operates mines in West Africa, uh, a long way from the complex, I think about 5,000 kilometers away. So they've been doing pretty well. They reported some really strong results towards the end of 2021. They saw their underlying profits surge and basically the group set managed to to generate around a billion dollars in operating cash for the year. So it's doing pretty well. It's expanding its operations in Mali and Senegal as well. So that's due to enter the FTSE 100. And then the last one I'll mention is some hopes were dashed of entering the FTSE 100. SqueezyJet, EasyJet seem to be on, you know, the path to recovery and doing well and and uh, like it might be set to enter the FTSE 100. But unfortunately, the war has blown it off course and its shares have fallen around sort of 15% since, since the war broke out. And the worry here is rising fuel costs. Um, uh, obviously, the uncertainty of energy from, from Russia is sort of creating those worries a little bit more longer term even if for the moment uh seems okay but uh well the price of oil is obviously rising so that's not okay and then um sentiment to travel around europe really it's just it's just put investors off massively you know we saw the banning of, of flights from russia over many skies and that's created a bit of an operational headache which will clear clear through but uh in terms of the fuel you're then worrying about russia weaponizing it um in the long term and and the potential impact that will have um so three three sort of stories around that for you okay let's move on to our interview with Leith Calliff from AJ Bell 
So, following on from last week's chat with Pamuel Gordon's economist, Simon French, who gave us a very good run through the rather steamy inflation picture, I thought this week it would be quite useful to speak to the investment platform, AJ Bell's head of investment analysis, Laith Calif, who we've had on the pod before, to dive a little deep into some of the investment products out there that might be able to keep ahead of this inflation, especially as the tax year end is just around the corner, of course, and you might be thinking of ways to use up that £20,000 ISA allowance that we get every year. So, Laith, a very warm welcome to you on the pod. Thanks for having me again. Let's start with the problem with cash, I suppose, and cash ISAs. Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, it's a similar problem to the one that's been around for um, uh, the best part of, uh, of 13 years, which is that interest rates are exceptionally low. And, and even though they are rising, um, the current base rate is is right now 0.5%. Um, now, um, you know, that, that actually is the rate that was introduced back in 2009 in, a, in, a, in response to the financial crisis. Uh, and at the time, it was heralded as, as an emergency rate. We weren't expected to be there very long, and lo and behold, 13 years later, we're still there. So across all that time, it's obviously been a very difficult time for cash savers, um, because you know cash returns have just been on the floor. But probably the one saving grace in all of that is, is during that time, inflation has been relatively con- con- contained, um, and that is now changing. So you know we've had inflation of, of over five and a half percent over the last year. That's expected to to then peak at at, at, at over seven percent in April, in fact, and, and continue. Um, uh, to, 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 to kind of prices continue to rise by an anticipated 5% over the next 12 months. Um, so interest rates are rising, but they're rising slowly. And all of that means that actually cash is going to be back going even further backwards in real terms, in terms of its buying power. So, you know, if you're a cash saver, you know, looking at you know, the last year that we just had in the year coming forward, you're probably looking at you know, close to, if not a double-digit fall in the value of your of your cash savings, and clearly that's a massive headache. Well, double digits is certainly very sobering. I'm just wondering whether people will be, you know, seeing the situation at the moment, appreciating the fact that their savings rate is is quite disconnected from the rate of inflation, but they're probably also thinking, well, central banks are going to be seeing this, so you know, hikes are are, are going to continue in terms of the base rate, and therefore savings rates will rise and those cash ices will become attractive again, especially on a risk reward basis. Uh, so yeah, I mean, how, how likely are further hikes and how far do you reckon they will go? Well, I think, I think it looks likely and the market certainly is expecting that the Bank of England will hike rates. Um, so just to put some perspective on that, looking at the bank's own forecasts and it forecasts what the market is, is expecting. Um, so um, it's kind of a, a sort of circular argument, but 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 that is is showing that you know we're we're looking at at sort of around one point a one point two five percent this time next year. So that's what interest rates will rise to. Um, so that's still not you know that high, particularly when you've got inflation running at five percent. So you've still got an issue there, um, and. And actually, the bank's forecasts beyond that are actually for kind of interest rates to kind of level off there. 
and that, and you know that's a really interesting question is do, do they keep rising or do they just level off i think if they were to keep rising um and and, and this is perhaps implicit in kind of the argument that you just for, for, uh, forwarded was was you know if if they keep rising and go back to you know where we were pre-financial crisis of you know four four percent then then yes sort of cash starts to look you know significantly more attractive but that's probably not going to be the case um, they are probably going to plateau and I would also slightly caution um, about you know pinning too many hopes on on interest rates which at the end of the day are you know decided by nine people in a room in Threadneedle Street. So although the market does build in expectations, those have been um, you know, shown, you know, shown, shown to sort of fall short of reality many times in the past. Um, so I think, I think even if you, if you do think the interest rates are gonna be rising, they're rising at such a small, a slow pace and, and probably you know, not getting to a very high level that that inflation is is still going to be a problem. Now, you know, base rate is not necessarily the rate that you can get on a cash ISA, for instance. You should be able to get a little bit more, but they are obviously related. Um, so, so, so yeah, I think you know, you know, interest rates rising is clearly good for cash savers, but I would also kind of just sort of sort of caution if you think that. Um, you know, this the interest rate rises are kind of going to totally bail you out in terms of um, counteracting the effect of inflation, because, you know, certainly for some considerable time, they're not. OK, well, let's have a little look at the split between cash and, you know, investments. What do you reckon is the right? I mean, we have to have some cash. So what is the right amount of cash? And should we therefore then just be putting the rest then into investments? So um, obviously, you know the, the the amount of cash used to hold varies from person to person. So, um, you know, if if you're thinking about a rough rule of thumb, then normally what we need cash for is for um, emergency situations. Um, you know, in case we lose our job, we need some money to be able to to live and, and carry on our expenditure. So, a rough rule of thumb is that um, you would need sort of three to six months of expenditure. Um, um, basically to, 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 to tide you over in the eventuality that, um, you know, you, you lost your job and, and didn't have an income coming in. You know, if you, if you work in a role where, you know, that's not going to happen or, um, you know, you feel like you're, you're, you, you, can, you can pick up a new job pretty easily, then you might want, want to play with that. And, and equally on the other side, if you're thinking about other things that you might want to, to spend on in the next, five years for instance big ticket items then you might want to have a little bit more cash but that that's probably a rough rule of thumb is is three to six months of expenditure and yeah what should you be doing with the rest well um again thinking about when you might need that money is probably your first port of call and if you've got money which you're thinking well i'm not actually going to touch this for five to ten years or more then, then yes, you should be thinking um, about investing it. Uh, and interestingly, this is something that, um, you know, it's not just people like myself who are saying, it's also the, the UK's financial regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, who have actually identified that there are 
you know, over 8 million consumers in, in the UK who have more than £10,000 of investable assets. And actually, you know, part of their, their, their most recently published strategy update for the financial regulator is that they want to actually encourage more people to, to invest because actually they see that there is quite a lot of consumer harm coming from uh, lots of people probably holding too much cash. Uh, well, I mean, it's interesting because actually part of Steps to Investing's initial work when we, we when we were doing the research before we launched the company was actually looking at, at that money sat in, in cash in, in people's bank accounts that could be invested. And, and the latest figures, you know, over a trillion that, that really when you X out those three to six months of, of expenses should really be invested in the market. So, um, yeah, interesting you say that there. Well, let's get on to the investment side of things and having a think about the types of assets that, you know, might, it's not not guaranteed, but might protect you against some of those forces of inflation. Let's start with company shares in general. How good are these at fending off inflation? Well, uh, I think they're probably a pretty, pretty good way of defending against inflation, uh, but it is in the long term. Um, you know, over the course of the year, um, you know, share share prices can move all over the place. So, uh, you know, the stock market is a pretty fickle beast in the short term. Um, the longer you give it, the more reliable a partner it is. Um, so, um, I think I think actually for long term inflation protection, um, and and when I say long term, I'm talking like I say five to ten years or more. Um, then the stock market is is probably um, you know your, your best bet. Um, so you know with, within that you know there are probably you know companies that do better and companies that that do worse from you know an, an, an inflationary environment. Um, so um, you know I think um, you know that's that's something that we may, maybe we'll come on to, but. In terms of you know broadly looking at what kind of asset classes you can invest in, then you've got the stock market, as I say, probably over the long term, good, good a good place um, in terms of, of, of fending off inflation. You've got cash, which, as we've discussed, um, is problematic, um, particularly when interest rates are, are at current levels. You have bonds as well, which are um, have a fixed income stream. Um, and are also currently yielding very little. So again, don't look very attractive in an inflationary environment. We've got gold, which you know is touted as an inflationary hedge. Um, again, I'd probably caution against that because gold can be quite volatile and, and driven by things which aren't necessarily to do with inflation, but it's a possible answer. But realistically, how much of your portfolio are you going to have in gold? Well, um, probably not, not a huge amount, probably we're talking kind of 5 to 10% if you're taking a fairly balanced approach to things. And then you've got property. And um, actually, uh, you know, property, you know, like shares should offer some, uh, some long-term um, uh, uh, inflation protection. The issue with property is how you get gain exposure to it. Um, and, um, you know, obviously you can kind of go down the residential route of, of a buy-to-let property, that comes with um, lots of lots of costs, um, uh, lots of charges, and a fair amount of risk if you're taking on leverage from the bank. Um, uh, so you know that's that's one possible option, but a fairly fairly costly one. Or I guess you can invest in um, you know commercial property through, um, for instance, an ISA or a SIP in a commercial property fund. Uh, that again is 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 another answer. Um, but, um, 
you know, again, you still do have, there are relatively high costs associated with investing in property, however you cut it. And there are also issues with particularly open-ended property funds, which we've seen kind of having to, to, to close down to new investors in, in recent times. But, you know, it could be part of the solution. But again, how much of this is, is, is how much of your portfolio you're going to have in property? Again, you're probably looking balanced portfolio five to 10%. So you maybe got some other solutions, but probably the main thing that you can actually do is invest in equities. Of course, if you're willing to take the risk and take and play a long game. So there are quite a few options that we can explore. Um, let's 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 dive a bit further then into equities, into company shares. Then, are there any any features to look out for in the types of companies that maybe weather inflation better than others? Yeah, I think I think there probably are. I think you know if you can invest in companies with pricing power, then that um, that is probably going to stand them in in good stead because. Part of the inflationary problem is that companies themselves um, experience price rises in their input costs, in their wages, in the raw materials that they're buying, in their transport costs. And if you have a company which can't pass those costs onto its customers, uh, then uh, you know you've got, you've got a situation where you know actually its profit margins are, are going to be eroded and and you know that's that's not going to be good for for its share price so you might look to, to companies that have that have um, pricing power um, I guess an, another thing that you might want to look at is investing in in some of the sources of inflation just before we get on to that just just looking a bit at pricing power I mean who who has pricing power just to sort of describe that type of company and and, and I suppose who who wouldn't have pricing power um, well, I guess you know if you if if you if you have a company which um, you know where where you where its customers have been shown to to kind of stay with it even though it's put through price rises and then that, that that's kind of a good a good a good sign for for the future. So you know I wouldn't you know pick out any of these as kind of individual investment recommendations for people. But let's take for instance a company like um, at like Apple. Um, which is, um, you know, a company which, you know, has consistently put through price rises on, on its key products and people have still kept buying them in large numbers. Now, um, that's good for the business. I guess probably the, the, the problem that you've got with Apple, and this might apply to quite a, quite a number of the, the stocks with pricing power that you might think about, is, is that it's trading at a very high valuation. And so while the business might be, in, you know, kind of insulated relatively well from, from inflation, actually the share price might might not be because um, you know that that high valuation might take a knock um, you know from inflationary pressures. You know you've you've got other companies, for instance, uh, you know Burberry is one. You know uh, if if you're buying a Burberry trench coat, it's it's two thousand pounds, a little bit out of my my price bracket. I don't know about you, Mark. <laughs> Me too, definitely. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm kind of probably more likely to shop in Primark, but um, <laughs> the. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you're shelling out £2,000 for a Burberry trench coat, I suspect that the cost of living crisis probably isn't really going to impact on that decision. So, again, you've probably got some inflation protection built in there. Um, so, you know, I guess it's it's companies like that. I mean, you could also make a case of tobacco stocks. You know, tobacco mm. stocks are stuff that they sell to people is addictive. So they have pricing power. If you put the price of someone's cigarettes up by, by 5% in a year, it's probably not going to be the thing that stops them smoking. 
So again, you've got pricing power there. So th- I guess those are some some examples of the kind of the kind of companies that might that might have pricing power, and that might put them in, in good stead to, to 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 kind of weather an inflationary storm. Like I say, you you also have to marry that slightly with valuation on these companies because mm. if you're tra- if you've got a company that's trading at a high valuation. Then that is potentially also the share price is is is, is potentially susceptible to, to inflationary pressures. Right, and, and when we say high valuation, we mean the price of the shares usually relative to other things like its earnings or its sales or, or whatever else it might be. That that is absolutely right. Yes, yeah, so there's a wide range of measures. Probably the the, the most uh, well known of which is the price earnings ratio, which is as you say the price compared to to the earnings per share. Um, and that that often gives us an idea of the kind of growth that a company is expected to deliver. Uh, and, and, and that means that actually a lot of the value of that company is tied up in earning streams that are maybe not here today, uh, but are actually coming along tomorrow or in five years time. And the problem is that if you've got inflation running at 5%, that erodes the value of having something in five years time. Because by the time you've get, got there, if you've got 5% inflation every year, then you then that's kind of you know taking away more than twenty five percent of its value, but uh, but yeah, highly valued generally speaking means means that one of those one of those those kind of valuation metrics is is elevated and and the key one that investors generally use is the price earnings ratio. Well, do you know we'll get onto some of those higher valuation um, sectors a little bit later on. I, I'll just go back to I mean you were mentioning you were going to mention some other. Um, areas and um, you know one of the things I was going to look at is some company sectors and you mentioned there some of the sources of inflation I mean is, is this sort of included in some of the company sectors that you might want to look at yeah that's right so um, uh, so looking at the sources of inflation so um, at the moment obviously that's kind of energy prices so you've got um, uh, energy producers you know oil, oil producers for instance gas producers so um, within the UK market, you've got um, likes of Shell, Shell and, and BP. You know, obviously, quite a lot of the energy price rises we've seen it already in the share price. Um, but if you're worried about inflation continuing, then it would be very difficult for that to happen without um, energy and commodity costs more generally continuing to rise. I think um, so. Th- those are a potential hedge against inflation. Probably the, the mining sector as well, because. Um, again, you know, if, if commodity prices, um, you know, iron ore and, and, and steel and copper aren't rising, then, you know, it's probably hard to see how, how inflation could, could, could keep sustaining itself. Um, so you've got the mining sector uh, as well. Uh, and probably sort of an indirect beneficiary of, of inflation might be the financial sector. So uh, I'm thinking probably primarily of banks here, because banks make a turn on 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 lending money uh, to borrowers and, and taking money off depositors, uh, and actually their profit margins tend to go up uh, when interest rates rise. And we know interest rates are going to be rising, so you you could certainly make a case that um, that the banks will be a beneficiary from that as well. Okay, and you you touched on gold. I mean, why why is this an inflationary hedge? And if you were wanting to sort of get some exposure to gold, how would you do that? I think it's it's you know partly it's it's just a very long standing convention that you know in times of inflationary pressure people flock flock to gold. 
Um, I think there probably is some, um, there is some sort of logic in it as well in that, you know, it is, it is kind of a, a non-fiat currency. So if you've got inflation, then essentially you have, um, you have traditional currencies being worth less. You know, inflation is essentially your pound or your dollar becoming worth less. And if you've got something that's distinct from those, i.e. gold, or perhaps you could say more recently Bitcoin, then, um, you know, I guess the theory goes that, you know, that that is therefore going to be be, be worth more in, in that scenario. Um, I probably, like I say, caution against that because, um, you know, gold gold has has been very volatile. It probably hasn't. You know, we have got inflation pressures clearly clearly rising and yet gold hasn't really kicked on in in recent times um in in the way that some gold bugs might expect and also you know i i I think if you look at at, at the history of gold there are times when it hasn't been correlated with inflation you know gold peaked at um apart from the sort of the recent peak that we've seen sort of back in 2011 around 1800 dollars an ounce um, so that that back then that was the kind of record price that it, that it, had, that it had ever seen, and in the next five years it fell to around one thousand one hundred dollars an ounce. Um, so that's a fairly oh. hefty loss that you'd be sitting on, and you know inflation, although it was low, is still ticking along in the background. So this isn't necessarily uh, a, a, a dyed in the wool hedge. So like I say, maybe a little bit of your portfolio you might want to put in gold because it does act differently to other assets. But I certainly wouldn't want to bet the farm on it. Well, yeah. So digital gold. I mean, you mentioned crypto assets. There is this. Are, are these? I suppose we haven't got a long history or proof with these, so that's why it maybe as an alternative yeah action. and that and i mentioned that really is a, it is a kind of theoretical knock-on from the whole gold thing i mean i think um you know i i think um i think if you're holding you know kind of crypto as a means of hedging inflation then you probably need to screws you know you've probably got a few screws loose because it's just so massively volatile it's got nothing to do with the inflationary price um so um you need to there are reasons why you might hold a small amount of these things, for instance, to capitalize on digital trends, um, you know, because it's a very small amount of your portfolio that you don't really, you know, it's a little bit of sort of flutter money, really. But an inflationary hedge is not one of them. Like you say, we've only got a very limited price history for it. And it certainly hasn't borne any relation to inflation or many other things for that matter. And then investing styles, you know, are is there a sort of certain type of, uh, approach that a fund will use that that might be better in this sort of inflationary environment also can you explain what we mean by investing styles i could try marcus yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so i mean there probably are lots of lots of different styles out there i guess there are generally there are, i guess there are probably four main styles that investors or professional investors tend to think about um and there are there are kind of you can you can mash these together to a certain extent uh, so there is um, there is growth investing, which is basically investing in things where profits are expected to rise um, pretty sharply. Uh, there is value investing, which is investing in stuff that is cheap. Uh, there is quality investing, which is investing in things that are uh, you know in companies that have robust finances. And there is momentum investing, uh, which is investing in stuff that's going up. Um, so uh, those are basically, I guess, the four main investment styles, and you can, you know, there are probably some others that you can add in around the periphery. Um, so um, 
you know, broadly speaking, the last sort of 10 years have been characterized by growth, quality, and momentum doing very well, and values sort of falling behind, really. Um, and a lot of that's been driven by, um, um, you know, the US tech se sector, which has exhibited growth characteristics, high earnings growth, and momentum characteristics, the prices have kept going up, um, and quality characteristics, because they have robust finances. Um, but kind of in an inflationary environment, what we started to see is value coming back um, and actually a little bit of a rotation away from tech stocks, which, which we kind of saw in the first part of this year, back towards kind of more cyclical areas of the market. Um, you know, it's interesting that, that so far this year, the, the FTSE 100, which is a, an index uh, uh, which is um, you know, heavily influenced by cyclical econom old economy sectors like banks, miners, oil, tobacco has actually done better than the S&P 500, which is, you know, filled with the likes of Apple, Amazon, um, Netflix, etc. Um, so, so I think in an inflationary environment, again, sort of value probably comes back into its own a bit. Um, and that's because, as, as I kind of was explaining earlier, if you're investing in, in, growth, in growth companies, what you're essentially paying for is, an, is, an, is a profit stream that is rising in value. But that value in the long term is pegged back if inflation is also rising. Um, so I think probably, you know, certainly the in, in theory, value should 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 perform better than it has done in an inflationary environment. And I think a lot of people's portfolios are now very heavily probably skewed towards growth because that's been the kind of big play of the last 10 years. So it might be time to kind of just have a little review of that, that dynamic within your portfolio. So you reckon it might be worth actually sort of pairing back some of those those growth strategies a little bit because it's had a very strong run and you know it's at risk i suppose um in the near term i, I think so yeah i mean i wouldn't you know i like I said, with all of this you know inflation is a really unpredictable environment variable so i wouldn't bet the house on any particular outcome i would just review your, your portfolio to make sure that it is well balanced um and and you know because the kind of the growth those sort of growth um, and particularly U.S. growth strategies have performed very well in the last 10 years. They've grown as a proportion of people's overall assets. And also because they've done well, people have looked at them and thought, well, I'll put more money into those. So they've also grown for that reason as well. So I suspect a lot of people probably have quite a high exposure to that. I'm not saying that you should get rid of it because, you know, some of these companies are still very strong companies and still offer you know, good, good, good rising profits over the long term. But it's all about balance, you know. At the moment, we're kind of facing an inflationary environment. So you might want to just think, you know, if that does continue, what, are, what other sectors might be worth including in my portfolio? Okay, just one final question. You mentioned the UK market has done quite well. Um, is, is that going to continue? I mean, we've had for so long, really ever since the Brexit referendum, the UK has sort of been iced out a little bit. Do you think this good start to the year could continue and it and it you know it, it might be quite an attractive place to have a look at investing again i mean i would i would have thought so because it's been such a laggard on the international stage um in in terms of kind of how it's compared particularly to the u.s market um and and you know also because you know the stocks within it um you know are are kind of economically sensitive stocks a lot of them are economically sensitive stocks and if you've got 
a strong economy, then actually that's which, you know, this year, at least, we're, we're expecting mm -hmm. that the economy will perform strongly and the global economy will perform strongly, then that's not a bad place to be. Um, but I would sort of, I would probably kind of, uh, the reason I hesitate is because, you know, the, the UK has really kind of dwindled in terms of its importance in terms of global portfolios. It's actually worth now just around 4% of the MSCI World Index, whereas the US is worth, worth about 70%. So if you've, got a, so if you've got a global fund manager who's putting their portfolio together, their starting point is that 70 pounds out of every 100 is going into the US market and only four pounds is going into the UK. To be honest with you, you might not even bother if you haven't got kind of a UK research arm or you might not even pay for the research to actually do that. So, you know, Global capital flows from that point of view probably aren't particularly positive towards the UK. And we've also seen even within the UK market itself, retail investors still dumping UK funds. Last year, there was a very big outflow from UK funds, even though there was a very big inflow in, into funds, funds generally. So there does seem to be still a, a, a fair amount of, sort of negative sentiment towards the UK um and you know that that could turn um you know maybe we just have to be patient and wait for that to, to turn i think there probably is one other factor which i'd kind of throw into the mix which we don't know quite how it's going to play out which is the esg factor which is that there, there is now a very high focus on esg investing and and funds you know, not investing in, in polluting companies. And that means different things to different people. Some funds will, for instance, invest in Shell and BP because although they are polluting companies, they are transitioning and they're a key part of the transition away from, um, uh, from, from sort of carbon intensive industries. But, you know, I think for a lot of ESG investors and, and, and funds, actually they're looking at these companies and thinking, no, we're, we're not going to invest in them. And actually, you know, the likes of Microsoft and Apple score relatively well when it comes to ESGs. So that's maybe another reason for not, not to be sort of popping any champagne corks about the UK market just yet. Nate Califf, thank you very much. Pleasure. Well, thanks once again to Leith Caliph from investment platform AJ Bell. Super knowledgeable chap, always an interesting conversation. And that one was certainly pretty wide ranging i think we cover quite a lot of stuff so please if you've got any questions just send me an email at marcus at steps to investing.com apart from that don't forget to check out the new site we've got the new investment platform pages which enables you to look for either accounts or from a style really i suppose of investment platforms so whether it's full fat diy platforms or more of the simplified do it with me platforms uh, we've we've got an analysis there of 10 of the best in each of those categories. So take a look. Let us know what you think of the website as well. And and also sign up to the, to the newsletter, sign up to the magazine. And there's the free seven-day email course. So basically, you get one email per day. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes with a little bit of content in there. And it just teaches you all the, the, those basics. Uh, if you're sort of wanting to lay a bit of a, a the groundwork uh, and understanding investing. But aside from all of that, have a very lovely couple of weeks. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.